Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. There's probably a cruel sense of disappointment creeping over some of you because we usually do begin this show with a comical introduction. And here today we're doing a show about human waste, fecal matter, poop, whatever you want to call it. So obviously that would be a glorious coming together. And there's sort of two reasons why there isn't a comic introduction right here. One of them is that we're in the middle of an Ebola scare. We don't have Ebola yet in the state of Connecticut, as I'm speaking anyway, but we're, it's being monitored in New Haven. So it seemed as though maybe it's not a good time for comedy, especially about bodily functions. And the other reason is, as our guests will talk about today, in some ways comedy and humor is the only way we ever manage to talk about this subject. It's something everybody does a lot of over the course of their lives, but talks about very little. There's almost no ra- other ratio. Maybe there is no other ratio like that, the ratio between how much we do poop and how little we talk about it. So, And when we do talk about it, we use humor because we're ashamed and defensive. I'm going to tell a story before I introduce our guests. I was in Europe in 2013. I was in Germany, specifically in a town called St. Gore, which is kind of a strange, cranky little town, but it's by the river. And uh, we went on a tour of a castle there. And this castle was, uh, you know, sort of from, I think, probably the early Middle Ages. And uh, there was a high turret in the castle. And the, the, the nobility would sit uh, on these boards that were kind of nailed around the outside of this turret. And they would do their business. They would poop. I, I don't know why they had to do that from the highest spot, but they did. And um, this is also the airspace that they pooped into was where the army, the soldiers, would be gathering. So poop would sometimes land on those soldiers. And I guess there was a sort of a protocol for that, too. If it happened to you, uh, the next day you would get a little something. You'd get a little silver or something from the noble family as a way of sort of saying, of making amends, I guess. You know, Sorry, my poop hit you. Well, it's a fairly terrible story. But it made us all think, we were all on this big tour, that, wow, we should always ask about that. You know, we should always ask when you go on any kind of historical tour, it's a great question that nobody ever asks. And a lot of times the tour guide will not volunteer that information. You know, how did they handle sanitation in this particular time and place, wherever we're standing? How did they handle sanitation? So we started doing that on the rest of the tour. We were in Trier a a few days later. That was a sort of a Roman outpost. They did, in fact, um, have Roman sanitation there, which was a little bit more advanced than uh, pooping out the window on boards that you're sitting in. So I just I sort of throw that out there to you that that really, you know, sanitation is destiny. It's really worth knowing, either in a modern environment or a historical environment, how people poop and where and why. So, I mean, that's my little story. Uh, I'm going to stop talking now and let our wonderful guests start talking. Our guest today, uh, as I said to her before, we went on the air, the most intrepid nonfiction writer in the world, is Rose George. And you may remember her from the show we did about container ships uh, and her book, 99% of Everything. Uh, that's all about the, those big container ships. And we said to Rose George, you're so great. We, the next time you write a book, we want to do another uh, show with you. And she said, well, our, my next book is about poop. 
So we said, well, a promise is a promise. Uh, her book is The Big Necessity, The Unmentionable World of Human Waste and Why It Matters. It's actually not that new a book, but it's out in paperback right now with a new afterword uh, about how the world changed in between the time Rose uh, first wrote it and what happened after that. In the studio with me, one of the other foremost poop writers in, in America, probably possibly the, uh, Sarah Albee is the author of Poop Happened, the Story of the World from the Bottom Up. Uh, also more recently, Bugged, How Insects Changed change History. That's possibly another show. We're live here in the afternoon. Uh, if, if things come up that you want to know about, 860-275-7266 is the number. 860-275-7266. I promise I'm going to stop talking pretty soon. So, in fact, I'll start ta- stop talking right now. So I'm going to ask each of you this, but I'll start with you, Rose George. You know, we're going to talk about some very serious aspects to, to toilets, to sanitation, to, to how the world handles uh, human waste. But I'd like to talk about in the beginning about the big taboo, that this is really a thing that people, for some reason, and it seems to be cross-cultural too, have a lot of trouble talking about. I mean, how much did you find that to be the case as you begin to began to become one of the world's foremost efforts, uh, experts on this subject? Well, the funny thing is that um, although the book has um, a subtitle, which is The Unmentionable World of Human Waste, um, the funny thing is that I found it to be absolutely the opposite. And I don't know whether it's because I think what happened is I sort of became the personification of permission to talk about this. And so I can honestly say over the I mean, the book came out in 2008. Um, so it's been it's been a while now. But I can honestly say in the thousands of conversations I've had about poop and toilets over that time, and there have been very, very many of them, um, I think. Fewer than half a dozen people have changed the subject or looked like they they, they found it unpalatable. And what invariably happens is that people will ask me what I'm writing about or or whatever, and and I'll say toilets or poop, and and there will be a pause, and then there will be, oh, my goodness, I remember this toilet in New Zealand. or And everybody has a story. And... um, I think what happens is we all think about this. I mean, we all spend, I can't remember the actual figure, but years of our life in the bathroom, some people more than others. But we we have space in our brains for this extremely natural and inevitable and unavoidable activity. And it's all got to be in there somewhere. So I think that, I think there's just been, it's become societally impolite, but it doesn't mean that people aren't curious about it or think about it, which I think is a good thing. I, I, you can mark me down as one of the people who spent extra time of his life in the bathroom, sitting on the toilet, reading your book about pooping in toilets, which felt like a very, you know, cerebrally circular activity. But it was interesting enough that I you know, didn't uh, hurry through my business. Uh, and it also felt uh, totally right. Now, Sarah Alby, one reason you wrote your book, if I understand it correctly, is you wanted to write a book for kids also that that sort of took their interest in this subject seriously but all, and also didn't shy away from the reality of it. Yeah, exactly. And I agree with Rose, in, but I, I uh, live in a world, I revolve around middle school kids, and they have almost never asked me why I've written a book about poop. I think they haven't quite internalized the taboos of adulthood, and it's very compelling to them. And it's you get the occasional high school principal or, or middle school principal who stops at the title of my book and kind of clears his throat. But but the kids are really interested. And yeah, that's I like to think that where Rose's book is an amazing, incredible 
um, assessment of the 2.6 billion people who don't have a toilet nowadays, I like to think I get kids at the front end and show them the history. Or the back end, as it were. Or the back end of the front end of history and just kind of show them the relevance of history and how in the not very distant past, many of their recent relatives had many of the same issues of the people that Rose has written about that had no place to go to the bathroom and just appalling sanitation in places like London and New York and Paris 150 years ago. Well, let's let's have both of you talk about that a little bit, Sarah. And Sarah, I'm going to stay with you for just a second here because, you know, even as here in the U.S. and in, in, in Great Britain as well, people are stressing about Ebola, which is a relatively exotic disease with, at least in this part of the world, a relatively small group of sufferers so far. Um, it, it is connected, obviously, to sanitation, and, and, and Rose's book begins on the Sierra Leone-Liberia border and ends in Liberia, Liberia uh, where, in fact, sanitation is much more problematic uh, than it is anywhere around here. But, you know, less exotic, less foreign diseases have played this incredible role uh, in, in human life, continue to, continue to, to kill people in droves, uh, sheerly out of the issue of sanitation. but So, Sarah, I'm going to start out with you because I know it's sort of a, a big part of your book. One of the things you did look at was London and cholera in the middle of the 19th century when, in fact, once again, people dying in, by thousands and thousands and thousands at a time from this disease, which, first of all, people had um, a wrong idea uh, uh, of its spread, right? They thought it came from so-called miasmas. That's right. People thought disease was, bad smell was disease, and that's the, the word malaria means bad air, malaria, and they didn't know it was transmitted by insects, but um, but cholera was, is a waterborne disease, but no one knew that until, well, cholera first came to the Western world in 1832. It struck London, and people were just, as you said, just Bodies were piling up by the thousands, and they be- the Victorians believed that it was the miasmas in the air that were poisoning people. Um, there was one voice in the wilderness named John Snow who, about 15 years later, wrote a paper, I think it was 1849, where he posited that it was, through, it was transmitted through the water, but no one listened to him. And so that's – but cholera really is the disease that changed sanitation when – and cha- got – governments to build and city ordinances to build sewer systems, which they had not done before, because when rich people started dying, they started to pay attention. Yes. Before there was a Jon Snow in Game of Thrones, there was this other Jon Snow, and he's quite heroic, <laughs> quite heroic figure here. He's, he's the guy who does sort of figure out the water is the big connection here, and particularly people's so-called drains, their sewer drains leaching into so-called wells, and so that those waters became commingled. You know, uh, uh, Rose George Sarah Alby just told a story, a very familiar story to you from the mid-19th century. But the story is also familiar to you because in some ways it, it, there are parts of the world that are still grappling with this reality, right? That, um, that if defecation isn't controlled, if, it, if something isn't done with it, um, it just opens the door to all kinds of diseases, including good old cholera. Well, of course. I mean, the, the most tragic um, example of that at the moment, of course, is Haiti, which is been fighting a cholera outbreak for a few years now and 8,500 people have died. They're still dying. Um, And part of the reason that happens is because Haiti does not have good sanitation. It doesn't have the safe containment of human waste. And the problem with human waste or excrement or poop is that it carries passengers. And some of these passengers are parasites, they're communicable diseases. 
Um, and you can easily get them if there's no sanitation. You can easily get fecal particles under your fingertips, in your food, in your drinking water. And that's how many, up to 50 communicable diseases like to travel. And the broader picture of what this can do, to what this does to the world is that Diarrhea, I mean, basic, boring, banal diarrhea, the Hershey squits, what, you know, we give it nicknames because we're not scared of it anymore in, in, in a world where we have plumbing and sewers, but in a world that doesn't, in, in the world of 2.5 or 2.6 billion people who don't have a toilet, it's deadly and it kills more children than HIV AIDS and tuberculosis and um, the measles put together. So that's 1,500 children dying of diarrhea every single day because of no sanitation. Um, this, uh, there are a lot of places where you can look at this in a very interesting way. And you mentioned Haiti. In some ways, a really interesting battleground uh, then when you were writing your book uh, around 2008 or, or before that. And now is India, particularly because the new prime minister, Navarendra Modi, has kind of made this a real big issue. That In fact, we have uh, uh, when the election, the recent election was unfolding, uh, John Oliver was describing uh, Modi's uh, position all the, on this on his HBO show. I think we've got uh, John Oliver right here. The point is, Modi has managed to inspire people with his populist platform, including a pledge to put toilets in every home. And wow, that's a bold move, coming out as pro-toilet. <laughs> Finally, someone's taking on the powerful, hastily dug ditch in a field lobby. Um, well, again, it's a laugh line, uh, Rose George, but it's also... First of all, it's, uh, as your book proves, it's so much more complicated than the difference between what we think of as a toilet and a hastily dug, dug ditch in, in a field. In fact, India has been wrestling this with this for a really long time and, and in various places, trying different kinds of things, some of which we would kind of recognize a, a, as a, a, a toilet and some maybe not so much. Uh, and you, as I say, you are the most intrepid nonfiction writer. You went all these places. Um, and so tell us, tell us about the picture in India as your book was on folding. Okay, well, the first thing I want to do is take John Oliver and frog march him down any street in India because, well, I think he needs a little bit of educating about the importance of a toilet and what it can do. Now, the trouble with India is that it has these amazing sanitation activists going right back to Gandhi. So Gandhi used to talk about the, he said sanitation was more important than independence. I mean, that's quite a thing to say from the father of Indian independence. So, but even today, um, nearly 700 million Indians still don't have a toilet and they do something called open defecation, which is just going and pooping where they can. Um, but the Indian government has thrown money at this again and again and again. Narendra Modi is very, very interesting, but he's not the first um, minister or prime minister to, to address the lack of toilets. But nothing has succeeded because they've understood something very, very slowly in India, and that is you can give someone a toilet or a latrine, but that doesn't mean they'll use it. So um, they've done really interesting research in North India recently um, in the past six months, and they found that these government programs which installed latrines all over this, this area of northern India, but they weren't particularly nice, and maybe kids were scared of them, maybe they didn't want to poop in a big black pit. Um, and they found that 60% of people were still going off to the bushes or the roadside or the field, whatever, to do open defecation. And that's just, that's so bad for the economy. It loses um, India the equivalent of Croatia's GDP every year in, in money. That's people who can't work. That's people who are ill. That's kids who are dying. And it's bad on all sorts of levels. I mean, you'll, you'll have heard about the, the horrible cases of young girls and women who've been raped and murdered while they've gone out to find a place to go to the toilet. 
So it's great news that Narendra Modi has has committed to putting a toilet in every home, um, and we're all waiting to see how that plays out. Um, towards the end of uh, our conversation today, we're going to talk uh, to, um, well, continue to talk to, to both of the guests we have now, but we'll be adding Eric Alm. He is an associate professor of bio- biological engineering at MIT, and um, he's doing some very interesting work um, with the uh, analyzing uh, of feces and sort of what's in them and what we can learn and how we can anticipate public health problems. He's also uh, running sort of an open biome project. Well, I, we'll have to explain that to you when we get to it. But also, uh, towards the end of the show, we want to talk about some of the really interesting signs of progress, too, even in between the uh, first edition of uh, Rose George's book and, and, and the new one. Uh, so many things happened, so many things changed that in writing her afterwards, she said she didn't know where to look first. But I think what we'll do right now is take a break. We're going to come back with more of Sarah and Rose um, and talk also a little bit about the stories closer to us just for a second. Close to us, but not visible to us. Underground for the most part. Doesn't it make you feel so united with every single human being on this earth? They're pooping in France. They're pooping in Italy. They're pooping in Japan and in Indonesia. Yes, people are pooping all over the world. They're pooping in Australia and New Zealand. When you think of all the troubles in this world, when you think of all the differences between all the people in this world, that's the time to think about pooping because that's something that unites us. It's something that we all have in common. Oh, yes. People are pooping all over the world. Yes, they are. They're pooping in Canada. All right. Uh, we're back. And we are, in fact, talking about a human waste. We're talking about poop. Uh, Rose George is the author of The Big Necessity, The Unmentionable World of Human Waste and Why It Matters. Sometimes when I have an author on, I'm sort of worried that we'll talk about so many things from her book that we'll sort of spoil it. There's no way we could do this. There's so much in Rose George's book that we are we are never going to even cover a tenth of what's interesting here. There's so, And there's so many things going on with this subject right now. Really fascinating stuff. Uh, Sarah Albee is with us. She has uh, also an incredibly diverse book. It's more uh, aimed at I, I think some of the middle schoolers who surround her. It's called Poop Happened, the, the History of the World from the Bottom Up. Uh, she's also got a, a book coming out fairly soon called Why Did They Wear That? Uh, Fashion is the Mirror of History. And, and Sarah Albee, in some ways, there are connections between these two books. As you look at um, the early civilizations uh, and how they dealt with poop, um, some did better than others, um, and, and it also kind of affected what they wore. But let's first of all talk about these early civilizations. I mean, who 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 was ahead of the curve in terms of sanitation? Yeah, that's kind of the premise of the book, which is that societies that paid attention to sanitation tended to be the ones that thrived until we got to the Industrial Revolution and cholera struck and then all, all hell broke loose. Um, but the, the Sumerians were among the first. They were 3500 B.C. and they had they had pretty good plumbing. They had toilets and drains and they invented writing. I don't know if they had the clay tablets in the bathroom. They had to have something to read while they were sitting <laughs> exactly. on the toilet. Um, the, then there were the ancient cities of the Indus Valley about 2500 B.C., like the, the city of Mohenjo-Daro, which also had drains and water-flushed toilets and piping and that sort of thing. Um, the real rock stars, though, were, I think were the Etruscans. They were about 500 B.C., and they were incredible engineers, and some of their some of their drains and, and sewers are still in use today. And then you get to the ancient Romans, who were also amazingly 
amazing engineers and very practical. And they built aqueducts that, again, are still in use today that were incredible feats of engineering. Well, they basically absorbed the Etruscans anyway. They were probably ripping yes. off their technology. Yeah, I think they pretty much did that. But, you know, even that little, you know, pathetic story I told from Germany at the beginning is an indication of the way it's not an unbroken line of progress that, you know, in some German castle in 500 AD, they're hanging their butts out their window and pooping on soldiers. But right down the road, you know, the, the Romans, during the expansion of the Roman Empire, in, into Trier as one of its border outposts, is putting in the kind of, uh, of um, sanitation system that you're talking about, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. Yeah, well, it's kind of sad, though. As soon as the Roman Empire fell, it kind of, the Europeans pretty much went about 1,500 years before <laughs> they started flushing toilets or covering sewers. So yeah. there was a long period of chamber pots and closed stools, and as you mentioned, garter robes, as they were called in these castles, where you, it was basically a hole that went into a moat or not a moat. Well, they were busy during that time with rank superstition and fear. Um, so um, I, I want both of you to talk a little bit about um, the, the, sewer, the sewer systems that we have right now, uh, particularly the sewer systems that are nearby to us, whether we are sitting in this studio in Hartford or a studio in Leeds uh, in the United Kingdom. Now, Rose George, uh, I keep saying this, but you are so intrepid that you went down into two sewer systems, um, uh, London and New York. Um, these are very – first of all, we just just say – these are potentially quite dangerous places. Uh, this is not uh, a place for sissies to go, right? No, uh, they're not. Because um, the, the thing about sewers and the thing about the modern flush toilet, um, by modern I'm saying the last 200 years, um, is how much water we put down it. So if, if we're putting down 6 to 12 litres of water with every flush, that going down in the sewers is an awful lot of water, and um, you can you can easily drown in a sewer, and that's before you even start with all the potential gases, and that's before you even consider all the sorts of weird things that people put down sewers, which can be really hazardous to anyone walking through a sewer. So one of the flushers, that's a wastewater operative, as they like to be called, because they used to have to literally flush the volume into the Thames in London. Um, one of the flushers in, in, who I encountered for the book um, once found a hand grenade down the sewer um, and had to quickly get up the ladder and, and, and chuck it out, which he, he later found that he absolutely should not have done. But anyway, he survived. But people do put all sorts of things down sewers, bits of motorbikes, uh, nappies. Um, and then the, the, the less visible stuff is pharmaceuticals, um, really powerful medicines, which are really tightly restricted above ground, but can just be flushed down a toilet or down a kitchen sink. So they're really, um, they're potentially very hazardous places in many ways, but they're really good fun. Um, explain what you mean by that. Well... For a start, so the, the, first, the first sewer I uh, went down into was right behind the offices of the Guardian newspaper in London. And it was the old Fleet River, which I'm sure Sarah um, knows about if she knows anything about London sewers, because it's one of the famous ones. And um, uh, so there I am, uh, and it's about 11 o'clock at night, because that's when the volume of, um, uh, of stuff in the sewers is quite low, because nobody's really on the toilet. Also, we should just say another thing about this. Uh, you know, you were talking about the dangers and the gases and stuff. There are like these horrible surprises that can happen in sewer systems. I think you talked about uh, sugar refinery plants or something that would just suddenly flush down this, you know, flesh-searing steam can suddenly come into the sewer system. I think another reason you said that you go at night is that there's less of that kind of stuff that's likely to happen. 
Yeah, well, you can. I mean, the the people who run sewers and the wastewater, they they try very hard to predict what people are going to put down sewers, and you're supposed to have all sorts of permits for hazardous materials. But people can flush what they like sometimes. So yeah, you you have to be prepared. So so sort of the hours before midnight are the safest time to go down, and you have to get kitted up. You have these. Um, crotch high waders and you have um, a harness and you have something that in in the UK is called a turtle which is for, to detect gases but that's apparently slang in the US for something completely different um, <laughs> it's actually slang for poop apparently um, and then you and your hard hat and your gloves and so you've got you've got nothing exposed and then I started going down the ladder and at every rung of the ladder I was expecting there to be some kind of great stink and it never came because there's so much water in sewers, 95% water, that they don't smell. They smell musty, they smell old, they smell a bit dank, but they, they don't smell of how you would expect them to smell. They don't smell of toilets. And some of them, I mean, in London, there are so many sewers that are about 35,000 miles worth or over greater London. Some of them you can drive a bus through. Some of them you can drive a car through. Some of them are tiny. And, and some of them are absolutely beautiful because they're, they're the old originals of 1860s, 1870s brick sewers built by Joseph Basil Jett, who is another of my heroes, along with Jon Snow, not Mine the too. one from, yeah, <laughs> not not the one from Game of Thrones, the other, the, the, the real hero, Jon Snow. Um, and he just created this amazing, beautiful network. And some of them have vaulted archways and vaults. And it's such a shame that they're too really too dangerous for people to go down because I think if we could see them, I think they would be much more appreciated and we would take far better care of them. Apparently, some of them are so narrow you can't drive your motorbike all the way through them. Um, all right, so um, Sarah, I'm just going to turn the floor uh, over to you for a second. Uh, you, you can give us whatever favorite uh, sewer facts uh, you, you'd like to. Well, the, the the Paris sewers are worth mentioning as well. They are also beautiful. I've been I've been down there. I agree with Rose. They don't smell too bad. Um, and they they were the Parisians were so proud of them in the late 1880s. They were they were having parties down there, and lords and ladies in their finery would be would put on barges and driven or rowed through the sewers just because it was such an incredible, incredibly beautiful and awesome engineering feat. Um, well, as long as you're mentioning that, though, I mean, another reason that they were proud and happy about this, it was, it was, and I, I know we're we're trying to, we're traversing several hundred years here. It was a nice alternative to taking the poop outside the city walls and letting it pile up there. You might want to tell that story too. Yeah, that that I mean, you could even say that that was part of what fomented the French Revolution uh, during the time. Well, they the Parisian the medieval walls of Paris for many many cities. That's what happened. They would have. Before sewer systems existed, the farmers would come, or the the gong farmers, they were called, would come and shovel out people's cesspits, put them into carts, and dump them either outside the city walls or give them to farmers who would use them for fertilizer. But in, I think when the farms started to get too far away and the city started to sprawl, it became a little less cost-effective for farmers to take away the poop. So the during the time, I think it was Louis XIII, um, they yeah the the piles of poop got so high they had to kind of re revamp the walls so that besieging enemies couldn't attack just run up the pile of dung yeah uh, and and get over the walls well um you know uh, Rose George uh, in terms of New York's sewers you know I think we sort of assume that I mean it, significantly first of all. All of this stuff is underground and unseen because that's the way we like things. It may also make lots of sense from an engineering perspective, but we, we want it down there where we can't see it. Um, 
I think most people would assume that the New York sewer system is kind of state of the art or, you know, that's it's as advanced as any uh, sewer system could be. Did, did you find that to be the case or were there startling, startling anachronisms uh, down there in the New York sewers? Well, I have to point out that it was very it was actually very difficult getting down the New York sewers because of 9-11 concerns. You really you need to clear so many security um, obstacles. And I, and I I did finally get down, but only into inspection chamber, which is above the sewer. So I didn't technically get right down into the sewers. But I was hanging out with all the flushers and the, and the wastewater guys. And um, no, my sense is that they're not that state of the art, right? They're old. They're 150 years old, some of them. They, you know, the great sewer building years were the late years of a 19th century, both in Europe and in, in the US. Um, and the trouble with a lot of the sewers that were put in at that point is that they were what's called um, combined sewers. So they'll take they'll take the poop, but they'll also take stormwater. So anything that goes uh, in, will go into the sewers off the street from rainwater to, you know, from the water you, you wash your car with, you know, everything will go into the sewer. And that means with population growth, um, the, the sewers just aren't, they're not extensive enough anymore and they can't hold the amount of um, liquid that we flush down the flush down our toilets and put down our streets. So even in New York, which, you know, is a pretty good, uh, has a pretty good network of sewers, even there, every single week, there will be raw sewage discharged into um, the nearest watercourse. And the same in London, because that's what the system is designed to do. If it's too full, then legally that's what it does. And you don't want raw sewage going into the sea or the ocean because it's got a lot of nutrients in it. That's why it was great fertilizer back in the back in the 19th century, um, because uh, it can lead to creating what's called dead zones in the ocean where you have over nitrification of which sucks out the life from the sea um, and is a really bad thing. Um, as I say, we'll never cover all of the things that are in both of these uh, writers' books. Um, uh, since we're on this sort of uh, area right now with kind of our own experience with this, um, I want to talk a little bit about toilets, although I want to preface this by saying with a tremendous amount of pride, we did an entire show about toilets several years ago, uh, and uh, and we look at that with uh, not unreasonable pride. Uh, but, um, Sarah, I'm going to come back to you for a second. Uh, there's a lot of talk about uh, who gets credit for inventing the flush toilet, uh, and both you and Rose treat of this subject uh, in your respective books, uh, but, but I'll let you have the floor. I mean, I think what you are basically saying is not exactly one person. That's right. Um, it kind of depends on how far back you want to go. There, there was a flush toilet invented in 1596 by Sir John Harrington, who was a godson of Queen Elizabeth. But I don't think that quite counts because I think he only made two of them. But um, the real first toilet, I think, is credited to Alexander Cummings in 1775. He was a watchmaker. He, but it was quickly followed up by several others who kind of improved upon Cummings' original design, which didn't really work that well. Um, he hadn't quite figured out how to vent the gases or to – he used something called a U-bend versus an S-bend, which came later, a kind of way of trapping smells and gases. And early toilets really didn't work very well. They, they were really loud when you flushed them and the, they shook the house from the rafters and – you could say, oh, I'm going to check the scones in the oven, but then everyone would hear the toilet flush and everyone knew exactly where you had gone. Um, 
Although that's a nice euphemism anyway. Yeah, they had lots of... I think I'll go check the scones in the oven. Yeah, there's lots of lovely euphemisms. Um, Everyone, uh, many people think that it was Thomas Crapper. Some people call him John Crapper, wrongly. Thomas Crapper did do a lot to improve upon the design of the toilet, but he really doesn't get sole credit for it. All right. Um, let's go from the 18th century. Um, first of all, in the in this our final segment, one of the things we're really going to talk about is whether the flush toilet, as we know it, is a sustainable and scalable technology uh, for the world to use. Whether it makes any sense. I mean, you know, you heard Rose say 95% of what's in the London sewers is water. Well, guess what? I mean, it doesn't really work all that well, particularly in other countries. Um, so we're going to talk about that and about the future of the toilet and the future of sanitation uh, in our final segment. But um, while we're just sort of on regular old toilets, if there can be such a thing. Let's go with Rose to the 21st century, um, where uh, both Rose and I have visited Japan in in the 21st century. And one of the things that happens when you go to Japan, if you're talking to anybody, is pretty soon they want to talk to you about their toilet and all the things that their toilet does. And and you say to them, well, what do you mean all the things that their toilet does? Your toilet basically does one or two things. Uh, oh, no, no, no. So, Rose, uh, I'm just handing the baton off to you. Uh, let's talk about the marvels that are Japanese toilets. They certainly are marvels, aren't they? Um, I love them. Uh, once you encounter a Japanese toilet, you can never go back to a regular one. Um, so I went to Japan because I'd heard that they had these high-tech toilets and I, and I was very curious. And, and I, I think uh, there's a kind of standard experience for foreigners who visit Japan for the first time. And that's that they'll, they'll, they'll arrive in and they'll use a, the first public bathroom they come across. And it will have a toilet which has got this extraordinary kind of remote control thing next to it. Or it will have lots of buttons and then it will have funny diagrams on it. And some of them will look like sprays of water coming up. And it will be absolutely incomprehensible because it won't be in English. And so they'll start pressing buttons and, and you know, the the mythical um, way that this happens is that they'll immediately just get soaking wet. Um, because high-tech toilets, um, and the funny thing is Japan, the Japanese don't even think these are high-tech, they think they're normal, will have an inbuilt bidet nozzle in, in the toilet, so built into the toilet, because the Japanese like to be very clean. They will never, uh, for example get into a bath without having a shower first and they've translated this into toilets and so every to ensure a very satisfactory hands-free cleansing technique they will they've invented this um, nozzle and two of the biggest companies are Toto and Enax and um, they have spent years and years and years of research perfecting the angle of the nozzle mm. I can't remember the exact degrees but there's about 20 degree difference between them and they've spent millions of figuring out this this um, and it, it it cleans you it dries you I I do actually have a Japanese toilet um, I was I earned one as a as a fee for a speech, which I'm I'm very proud of. It's in my ramshackle house in the south of France. I think it's probably the nicest toilet for about a 300-mile radius. Um, And it's just wonderful. They have heated seats. Um, Some of them will will take your blood pressure and stuff, Some of them can take your blood pressure. Some of them can analyze your urine. Some of them have MP3 attachments. I think they're quite standard. And they're actually more, um, they're called, the Japanese call them washerettos, which comes from the brand name Washlet. Um, And... I think more um, Japanese have a washerato kind of toilet than have a personal computer, which is an extraordinary statistic. And they're just, um, they're great. But the reason I wanted to write about Japan and the high-tech toilet, it's not because it's all bells and whistles and, you know, Japanese gadgetry. It's because what, the other thing that happened in Japan is that Japan made the toilet a talkable, desirable thing. 
So whereas in the UK and the US, um, marketers call the toilet a distress purchase because you only buy a new one if yours is broken generally or if you move house. But in Japan, people upgrade their toilets and they really pay attention to it. They take care of it. You can buy them in, in your basic average department stores. You know, you'll get a display rack of MP3 players and then a display rack of washlet seats that you can attach to your toilet. And they've just made it visible. And, and uh, um, I think given, given the toilet, the respect that it should have elsewhere in the world. Uh, that's a good place for us to break. Uh, we're going to come back. Uh, we will add our third guest to this conversation. But, and I also really want to spend a little bit, little bit of time here talking about progress. Progress. There is some very interesting progress. There are other things to do with poop besides flush it away with a lot of water. So uh, we'll talk about that as well. Hang in there. I just kind of fell into it. <laughs> Lucky me. Waste the song Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Colleen Murphy and Nia Tyler. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mr. Hankey. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staffs, you know what, let's not go there. Visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, the nose referees the feud between Martha and Gwyneth. And now... Back to Colin. We've got a lot of things right now that we're debating about uh, as subjects for the news. We have a great panel for you tomorrow, and writer Steve Allman uh, will be joining that panel for the first time ever. So, And plus, uh, some of your favorites, Tracy Wu Fastenberg and uh, James Hanley. So uh, today we're talking about poop, about human waste. We've got Rose George. Uh, you got to get this book, The Big Necessity, The Unmentionable World of Human Waste and Why It Matters. And Sarah Albee, her book is called Poop Happened, A History of the World from the Bottom Up. I, I would just simply say that if I had this book... When my son was between the ages of probably seven and 20, I don't know, uh, we would never have been at a loss for conversation matters. As a matter of fact, I would just, you know, a long drive, just throwing the book into the back of the car and let, let him pick a, a topic because, I mean, really, she's got it, – it's organized in a very nice way, in a very fun way, in a very interesting way. And so there's a lot to talk about, some of it serious, some of it kind of funny. Um, in fact, before we move on to the next topic, quickly just tell the de- defenestration of Prague story. <laughs> Um, this is a happy story about piles of poop in the streets. Well, it happened in 1618, and you read about it in history books a lot as one of the pivotal incidents that started the Thirty Years' War um, when some rabid Protestants ran into the Tower of Prague and threw some uh, ministers of the king of the Holy Roman Emperor out of the window. And it's 50 feet up and probably four stories high. And what you don't read about very often is that they survived their fall from the window because they landed in a huge pile of poop. A soft landing. Yes. All right. So sometimes there are happy stories about this. Um, I'm going to have Rose talk a little bit about what she's seen around the world here, um, uh, what the future of this looks like uh, as we head towards the end of the show. But right now, I want to add to this conversation Eric Alm. Uh, he's an associate professor of biological engineering at MIT, an associate member of the Broad Inst- Institute. And uh, Eric has been doing some very interesting things in the uh, area that we've been talking about uh, during this hour today. Um, maybe the place to begin, Eric, is that one of the things that you did for a year 
was to uh, collect and analyze your own stool, as we would say, uh, and explain what the purpose of that was. Yeah, thanks. Um, so, uh, so we did that in, in 2009, uh, and at that time, it was really kind of the beginning of uh, uh, a new research area um, that's, uh, that's become uh, fairly popular in the, in the past few years, and that's uh, research in the, into the human microbiome. And that's really studying the, the trillions of bacteria that live in and on our bodies. And so uh, when we got interested in this, uh, we really thought before we, you know, launch any big uh, clinical studies and looking at differences between people, uh, what we'd like to do is, is see how do these bacteria that are living in our guts uh, respond to our, da- you know, daily choices we make for, you know, lifestyle and, and diet and things like that. So we came up with a list of uh, about 300 different factors that we thought uh, might affect um, the bugs that are living in our guts, and, and just to be explicit here, um, poop is is mostly just uh, is mostly just these bacteria, right? Um, uh, and yeah, yeah. Oh, no, go ahead, continue. And so uh, these bacteria, um, you know, we we think of bacteria oftentimes as as pathogens, but really we we sort of uh, rely on these bacteria to um, to 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 do. Um, do a lot of services for us. So if we think of the, the gut as an ecosystem where we put in some, some raw material, some, some nutrients, um, and then you know, we, we actually get a lot uh, out of this, uh, this ecosystem. And so it turns out uh, a lot of the chemicals floating around in our bloodstream are, are only chemicals that are made by bacteria. So they're, they're being made by the bacteria in our guts, and, and, but they're actually you know, perform cr- critical roles to the, to the health of the human body. So, so we wanted to know how, how do things we do sort of change uh, what bacteria are in there and what they're doing. And obviously to know this stuff, is to, it opens up a world of um, important public health information and maybe even the ability to anticipate certain kinds of outbreaks of things, pathogens that you do find in poop. But let's go back to the, to the good stuff. So the, the good stuff's in there. And this is, it's weird because on Tuesday we did a show about superbugs and um, uh, bacteria um, as, that are resistant to antibiotics. Uh, the one thing we didn't really talk about is uh, fecal transplants, but now we can do that. So uh, one of the things, and it's in Rose George's book too, this whole idea that in some cases what a patient needs is some of these um, beneficial uh, bacteria that that are in the poop. They don't have them uh, and uh, they need to get them from someplace else. So somebody else's feces are effectively transplanted uh, to uh, to a host. Uh, This is something you really worked on a lot, Eric, including something called the uh, open biome. Tell us about that. Yeah, so the open biome uh, really started out of uh, the efforts of a graduate student uh, who was in my lab uh, at the time. And so um, we weren't the, uh, the first folks to start thinking about these, uh, these fecal transplants. In fact, a lot of the exciting science papers had already been, been written. But what really struck my student, uh, Mark Smith, at the time was that uh, he had a friend uh, who was, you know, uh, around the same age, uh, a young guy who, uh, who had heard about the fecal transplants. Uh, he had a recurrent uh, C. difficile infection. Uh, so this is Clostridium difficile. It's the most common uh, hospital-acquired uh, infection in the, in the U.S. Uh, it affects about a uh, half million people per year. And we anticipate, uh, you know, about 15,000 people will die uh, in, in the next year due to these infections. Um, and uh, we, we had read these papers saying that, you know, the, the cure rates uh, for this uh, procedure, this uh, FMT, or fecal microbiota transplant, uh, is around 90%. 
Um, but nobody was really willing to do it. There were very few doctors who were actually performing the procedure uh, compared to the, the number of patients who, who were really desperate to get the procedure. And, uh, you know, we had talked to some doctors, and they were like, you know, I don't even know what to do. You know, do I go out and buy a blender from Target and mix it up? You know, I haven't done that before. Is there uh, some liability associated with doing this myself? And, and there was, you know, a lot of uncertainty about what the FDA regulations even are around this. So uh, what he said is, you know, this is what we do. We're microbiologists. We could actually do this at a fairly large scale and then provide this material to doctors. And so he started doing that uh, in the laboratory. Um, and that was maybe uh, a year ago. And at this point, uh, we've sort of spun that effort uh, off as a nonprofit organization. Uh, it has a staff of uh, 10 people now. Uh, it operates out of Medford, Massachusetts in its own independent space uh, and serves uh, over 120 different hospital networks at the, at the moment. So if you're already a sperm donor and an organ donor, this could be another thing you could donate. Um, and, and Possibly. We have a very uh, stringent uh, screening procedure uh, right now. So a lot of people come to us uh, uh, looking to be donors, um, and, and we exclude uh, most of them, actually. Right. Um, see, it's maybe a club you can't get into. All right. Let me just ask you this. In terms of your monitoring your own um, stools and therefore your own biome and, and any other kind of monitoring that you've done, I mean, one of the big questions that we have right now is w what do antibiotics do to us? You know, do they permanently change uh, the organisms in our gut? You know, are, are they fundamentally altering uh, our biology? Now, in your own case, your results got a little bit skewed by the fact that you got salmonella poisoning in the middle of all this, which is put you in a whole different category. But <clears throat> setting that aside, I mean, did you have you learned anything about this? This is the thing everybody's worried about, right? That we're using antibiotics too much and, and we're killing off bacteria that we need. Well, I don't know if everybody is uh, is worried about it. I'm Certainly, worried about uh, it. <laughs> I'm worried about it too. Um, we, but you know, I mean, the truth is, we don't have a lot of information about what the long-term uh, health effects of uh, all the antibiotics we're taking are. Um, there's certainly uh, a, a lot of data to uh, to suggest it, it might be unhealthy to uh, reduce the diversity of the microbiome by by taking these antibiotics, um, and. Uh, 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 we know that uh, C. difficile infections uh, generally stem from antibiotic use for, for some other conditions. So mm -hmm. patients come into the hospital, uh, they get antibiotics uh, for something else, uh, and then as a result of that, the Clostridium difficile infection is able to uh, take over the gut and sort of fundamentally change that ecosystem uh, so that uh, the healthy gut can't get restored. Uh, I think Jap there's Japanese toilets that will tell you you're taking too many antibiotics. I, I could be wrong about that. Um, Rose George, I'm going to switch back to you a little bit. The time is short here. And really, if I gave you a podium in four hours, you'd still be talking four hours later about all the things that are happening in the world. I mean, it's maybe too soon to be optimistic about this, but everybody from Bill Gates to, to, to you know the U.N. has turned their attention to the notion that clean water, which everybody believes is, you know, is a fundamental right and a fundamental need, is uh, closely associated with sanitation, with some kind of human waste disposal, which is also uh, a fundamental right, uh, as the U.N. has declared. I don't know if you wanted, had to mention, like, one project that really excites you, uh, or go ahead and pick one. Can I have two? Uh, well, yeah, it depends on how fast you okay, talk. Okay, okay. So the first one is what you just mentioned very briefly, which I think deserves repeating, is that sanitation is now human right. That is an extraordinary thing because... 
when governments were putting together the Millennium Development Goals, which is a series of targets to improve our planet in many ways, they didn't even include sanitation. They didn't even think it was necessary. The Americans fought against it. Um, and now we have sanitation as a human right. Okay, so my first project is is the UN sanctioning of sanitation as a human right. My second is actually the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and they have a project called um, Reinvent the Toilet. And they are putting lots of serious money and serious attention into questioning whether the flush toilet is actually the best thing we can be doing with our poop in this day and age because it uses a lot of water, it uses energy, we have to clean this stuff. We are, as Karl Marx said in the 19th century, we are throwing away a perfectly good resource, which is human poop. It's full of not only good bugs and bacteria, it's full of nutrients, it's full of um, phosphorus and phosphates, which we, we can really, we need. So um, they're questioning whether we can t start seeing it as a resource. There's all sorts of things you can do with poop. You can, you, can, um, you can get the biogas from it. You can use the gas. You can generate electricity. Um, you can put it on fields. I mean, the, we've started to see it as this. It, we've all seen it for too long as human waste. And we've, we've all used that phrase in, in, this, in this hour. And, and, and it's not. It shouldn't be waste. It should be a resource. It, it, there are amazing stories in this book. I mean, I'll just mention one of this Rwandan prison system where they, uh, uh, you eat, the prisoners eat in the kitchen and then they poop and the poop gets turned into biogas, which is used to cook the food for the, you know, the meals that they'll eat in the future so that they can poop some more. Uh, and you start realizing, oh, no, it's not waste, actually. It is part of, as they would say in The Lion King, the circle of life. All right. Uh, we have to stop talking about the circle of life right now. And some of you probably have to go sit on the circle of life. Thanks to Rose George. Uh, her book is The Big Necessity, The Unmentionable World of Human Waste and Why It Matters. Sarah Albee's book is Poop Happened, A History of the World from the Bottom Up. She's also got a Why'd They Wear That, which is the history of fashion uh, coming out pretty soon. Eric Alm is Associate Professor of Biological Engineering at MIT and Associate Member of the Broad Institute. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan for putting this show together. We'll be back tomorrow with the news.